0: Welcome to episode 8 of the New Renaissance Bookcast, with me, David Lorimer, from the Scientific and Medical Network. In this episode, I'll be reviewing two books on technology and the future. The first is called The Metaphysics of Technology, by David Scribina, published in 2016. I met David Scribina at the 80th birthday celebrations for Henryk Skolimowski in Poland, They had been colleagues together in the philosophy department at the University of Michigan, and Henrik's influence is apparent in this bold and philosophically revolutionary study. Amazingly, this is almost the first book on the metaphysics of technology, rather than other philosophical aspects. It has direct relevance for the various technological books that I review in the books in brief in other sections of the journal, as they relate to the singularity and the development of genetic and nanotechnology, here called GNR, Genetics, Nanotechnology, Robotics. David points out that much thinking about technology is itself technological and relatively uncritical. However, he reminds readers that we cannot in fact escape metaphysics. As far back as 1973, Henrik was writing that Technology is a historical phenomenon born of a certain idea of nature, of a certain idea of progress, and is also related to specific social ideals and specific ends of human life. By these facts alone, it is laden with elements of traditional metaphysics. The first part of the book provides an extensive historical and philosophical background, going back to the Greek concepts of techni, logos and theos, Observing that the word itself is an amalgam of the first two. An important overriding concept is that of the pantechnicon. The Greeks already saw technology as a world force present in both humans and nature. In this context, the pantechnicon is a universal process driving evolution forward, creating higher levels of order, complexity, and intelligence along the way, and operating as a fundamental law of nature both autonomous and inexorable. It seems to have an intrinsic intentionality, expanding and evolving, pressing forward relentlessly and imposing itself ever more powerfully. At first we have automation, then autonomy. Here lies an alarming aspect of David's thesis. He postulates two phases of technological development and determinism. The first anthropogenic, dependence without control, And the second, autogenic, when technology will become self-making and self-evolving. This is what exponents of the singularity expect. There's a great deal of discussion of leading philosophers and other thinkers who have been proponents for or opponents of technology, notably German thinkers including Heidegger, Jaspers and Borkman. David Kuffer's classical critiques from Athens to Rousseau, Kant, Goethe, Carlyle, Thoreau, Nietzsche, and more recent critiques since 1900, including Veblen, Whitehead, Spengler, Elul, and Orwell. Interestingly, there's no mention of Aldous Huxley. The 60s bring Lewis Mumford and Ivan Illich, and the 70s Henrik Skolimovsky with his ecological critique. Interestingly, there are very few systematic critiques from the m- mid-1980s, and David speculates that this may be due to people thinking there's no philosophical problem with technology. This leads on to a more extensive discussion of the technological determinism and its implications, especially in the work of Elul and Rozak. David recalls that the technological system is not only composed of tools, machines and devices, but also procedures, rules and organisational principles. A further chapter discusses replies to and refutations of the deterministic thesis. The next chapter addresses the consequences of technological development. David sees technology as first having sacrificed human well-being for the sake of its own development with little regard for humanity or nature. This also reflects mechanistic thinking. So technological advance becomes a self-serving end Man-made damage to the environment is technical damage, which we can see all around us, and which is based on our conviction that we can improve on nature. What we have in fact done is is disrupt the organic wholeness of the planet for our own short-term benefit. The second case considers the effects of educational technology, which has had no effect on improving literacy and numeracy. Finally, the risks to human health, including cancer, obesity and rising rates of depression. The impact of information technology on health is examined in a separate section, as is the psychological, the psychological aspect of too much time in front of screens, correlated with attention deficit, addiction and sleep disorders. Then we have new forms of crime in terms of cyber warfare, as well as almost universal surveillance. David goes as far as arguing that technology functions as a virus attacking the moral and psychological basis of our humanity and eroding our critical thinking processes and moral autonomy. This does not mean that technology is evil, but rather powerful and indifferent, hence dangerous. The final chapter discusses technology and human destiny. Earlier in the book, David wonders if it is inevitable that technological societies will destroy themselves. Various threats have been present over the past few decades and are highlighted, among others, by Lord Rees, former president of the Royal Society, in his book Our Final Century? Some people go so far as to speculate that previous civilizations such as Atlantis have in fact destroyed themselves when their technology outstripped their wisdom. David sees signs of decay all around in terms of environmental destruction, declining health, and exploding populations. A fundamental question is the extent to which technology improves our quality of life. When one looks back 30 years, one had a great deal more time. The post arrived once a day, and one one responded to the old telephone call. Now we all carry a technological, psychological, and time burden – of constant information overload, and the expectation the replies will be immediate. It takes an hour or two a day to service this information throughput, throughput, and we dare not go offline on holiday in case we can't catch up again. So do we have to accept an inexorable technological future? David proposes an act of creative reconstruction with a dramatic retrenchment of the contemporary technosphere, a substantial global population reduction, and the restoration of the majority of the Earth's land to true wilderness. He sees this as the only path to a long-term sustainable future, although he's not optimistic that we will follow through on this proposal. Against this, we are assured that technology is not the problem, it is the solution, and that we must relentlessly continue to advance our technical capabilities. In David's view, this will expose us and the entire planet to increasing peril. Rapidly advancing technology will be combined with rapidly declining quality of life. This radical outlook certainly gives pause for thought and encourages readers to take a more critical stance towards technology and its alluring promises. The second book is In the Shadow of the Machine, which is the Prehistory of the Computer by Jeremy Nadler, published by Temple Lodge in 2018. This is a brilliant and penetrating study of the prehistory of the computer in relation to the evolution of human consciousness, drawing on many primary sources and illustrated with diagrams and photos to support the overall argument. In the light of our deep reliance on digital technology, Jeremy asks about the philosophical and spiritual significance of this dependence in terms of our relationship to nature, and indeed the shape of our very future. Taking this historical view enables readers to understand the gradual mechanization of the mind and the emergence of what Rupert Sheldrake calls mechanomorphic thinking. We invent machines, then we explain ourselves in terms of them. The book begins with an exposition of participative consciousness in the ancient world, where humans did not only not only felt not only, did not feel themselves separate from nature, but also stood its, understood its significance from within. He discusses ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia before moving on to Greece, where the center of gravity begins to move from the poet to the philosopher, from imagination to logic. With the early example of Odysseus. As, a clever, guileful, and, in, as clever, guileful, and even instrumental in his approach. There is a distrust of the misuse of logic and rhetoric if it is not used in the service of spiritual insight. This brings in a major theme of the book, namely the functions of noesis and gnosis, compared with dianoia or ratio as analytical reasoning. The nous, later intellectus, or the intellect, is the higher or deeper intelligence and contemplative faculty enabling unitive spiritual insight, as also reviewed and highlighted in my review of another book called The Scientist and the Saint. Even for Aristotle, the nous is oriented towards being as an expression of something within them that is divine. This domain was one of spiritual light and was familiar to Protinus as well as me- medieval mystics. Crucially for Plotinus, Jeremy explains that the spiritual light is also the medium of contemplative thought by which we come to know. Hence, human knowing arises through participation in this formative, creative and intrinsically moral principle of light. Gradually, this spiritual understanding of light was lost and reality came to be conceived of in outer material and mechanical terms associated with the emergence of an objectifying and detached awareness, prioritising rationality over feeling. In this respect, the abolition of monasteries with their contemplative orientation was hugely significant. Jeremy goes on into this process in considerable detail, including the gradual ascendancy of dialectic over grammar, of logic over language, along with the rise of nominalism, he characterises the thought patterns of formal logic as intrinsically mechanical and illustrated through the development of the camshaft. The mechanical clock enables time to be measured and represents a gradual shift away from qualitative to quantitative approaches, culminating in the work of Descartes and Galileo, where the quantitative assumes epistemological and ontological priority with the widely accepted distinction between primary and secondary qualities the first are measurable and objective while the second merely subjective also corresponding to the ancient distinction between knowledge and opinion significantly secondary qualities also include consciousness the 17th century scientific revolution sees the establishment of scientific academies and a shift of epistemological authority away from the church to empirical science. The role of Francis Bacon is discussed at length in terms of the mechanisation of the process of thinking, resulting in the automation of logic and an attitude of control and exploitation of nature. Jeremy sees the idea that the human mind can be disciplined to operate like a machine as the seed idea of the computer, corresponding to a reimagining of the human being in the image of the machine. One of the most fascinating passages is his discussion of Bacon's invention of the binary code with its different combinations of the letters A and B. Here there is no mention of his leading role in Elizabethan Rosicrucianism, nor of the different kind of concealment represented by his possible involvement in the authorship of the Shakespeare plays. It is true, however, that his primary influence has been on the development of scientific thinking, And in this respect, there is an interesting comparison with Newton, whose alchemical and theological writings were neglected until comparatively recently. Cultural influence is often shaped by social and historical factors and trends, not exclusively by the work of the thinker himself. The invention of the vacuum as a break in the natural order was highly significant, and the relevant experiments are described as is also the case with electricity later in the book. Although Pascal invented the first calculator in 1642, he did not equate calculation with reason and thinking, as did other later thinkers. Jeremy describes the work of Leibniz in the development of thinking machines and programming language in the light of what he calls the myth of binarius. The publication of La L'Homme Machine in 1749 continued the development of the idea of the human being as a mechanism. Then the Industrial Revolution showed how men could be enslaved by their machines. The book continues with an exploration of the loom and punch card, and the role of Charles Babbage in developing his analytical engine, where he asserted that the whole of the development and operations of analysis are now capable of being executed by machinery. Hence, mental operations are conceived as merely operations of matter. I can readily appreciate how this thinking has been extended by computers and artificial intelligence. All that was missing for Babbage was electrical circuits. Interestingly, Jeremy discusses electricity as the pseudo-life principle of mechanistic philosophy. The process continues with a decomposition of language, and the constriction of thought processes in, in, in electrification of thinking, mediated by the work of many 19th century scientists. Also by Frege's development of symbolic logic, where languages stripped down and dehumanised, and the emphasis is the underlying logical form rather than content as such. Programming languages derived from symbolic logic are cast adrift from human language and bound into binary code page 258, there's no room for ambiguity or indeed subtlety. It is here as well as at other points in the argument that it would have been useful to draw on the cultural analysis of the role of right and left brain hemispheres set out in Ian McGilchrist's book The Master and His Emissary. The analysis in the two books has much in common, and I think Jeremy's narrative could have been enhanced by including this perspective. Ian would see the mechanisation of the mind as the triumph of the left hemisphere and its thinking, leading to an imbalance in our culture, a conclusion which Jeremy would doubtless endorse. A quote from Maxwell on page 270 exemplifies left hemisphere expression when he writes that the aim of exact science is to reduce the problems of nature to the determination of quantities by operations with numbers. This is fine as far as it goes, but not if it claims to be in a complete account of reality in terms of equations. In his final chapter, Jeremy reflects on a possible metaphysical or qualitative perspective on electricity involving the deeper intelligence or intellect. It is interesting to reflect that the last forty years of near-death experiences and the work of people like Sir Alistair Hardy, following up on William James have exposed us to accounts of immediate encounters with spiritual light and love, which experiences insist carries greater sense of reality than normal and sensory experience. This challenges us to accept this insight as genuine contemplative knowledge, as spiritual traditions have always maintained. As Jeremy writes, this light reflects divine goodness and has a distinctive moral quality. He sees a parallel between the sages of medieval Europe recognizing the affinity between the inner nature of light and the contemplative thinking of the intellectus, and the discovery by modern rationalists of a similar affinity between electricity and a logical analysis using ratio or reason. This latter faculty enabled us to penetrate sub nature, but it is now imperative that we recover and live from, this deeper intelligence or intellect as primary. And he writes, A deeper, wiser, contemplative intelligence must be present alongside logical thought processes and must act as their guide, for it alone recalls us to ourselves and to our freedom. As Jeremy rightly remarks, a truly human future depends on this, and his book is a spiritual beacon reminding us that our essence transcends the material and the mechanical. And uh, Jeremy has, in fact, um, followed up this book um, with a new one, um, which is about the struggle for a human future, and which is reviewed in Paradigm Explorer 134. So I look forward to um, being with you for the next episode.